this is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Criminals beware. There's a new sheriff in town, and he means business. First, he hunted down the January 6th insurrectionists and made them pay. Now he's searching for classified documents, and he's coming for whoever has them. Democrat, Republican, or whatever Trump is now. And you don't want to be in his crosshairs. He's Attorney General Merrick Garland. Baby, I'm just a little too obsessed with accountability lately. But I'm thinking it's past time some indictments are made. Our current Attorney General Merrick Garland has shown that nailing corrupt politicians is not his strong suit. He's put the full court press on the Biden document snafu because it's a simple way to show the public that his Department of Justice takes an unbiased approach to the law and will investigate both Trump and Biden equally, even though the two cases are night and day. But whatever. Merrick Garland, don't play. (laughs) As you may have heard, classified documents have been found in the homes of President Biden and former Vice President Pence, whose lawyers are cooperating. And also at the home of former President Trump, whose lawyer put a horse head in my bed. The FBI's most recent search of Biden's summer home turned up nothing. Former Vice President Mike Pence probably won't be investigated for coming up with his own batch of misplaced documents. But all of it has muddied the waters and made the Trump Morillardo case less likely to be a slam dunk. But like I've said many times, many, many times before, Trump is going down but not like a president. No, he'll go down like a fucking gangster, the kind of gangster that he is, to quote Wednesday's Daily Beast, like Capone, Trump is bragged of not paying taxes, and like the convictions against Capone, the Stormy Daniels matter may include misdemeanors, but it could be his ultimate downfall. And in my opinion, it's looking more and more like it might be accountability time for individual number one. This is from page 24 of Jeff Berman's book. Quote, the first time Maine justice intervened, sorry, Uh, even though I was not overseeing the Cohen case, I still had to deal with other issues involving it, all of them deriving from the same source, Maine justice and its attempts at interference. The first time Maine justice interfered was when the information was being finalized. Information is a term of art in this context. After Michael Cohen agreed to plead guilty, the charging instrument against him uh, became an information rather than indictment. So that was the title of the document that Berman is referencing here. It was an information. It was about 40 pages long, he says. And it, quote, referenced a person identified as individual one as having acted in concert with Michael Cohen. He says, quote, there was zero doubt as to the identity of individual one. It was Donald J. Trump. And as I said to Don Lemon Wednesday morning, I recently turned over my cell phones as evidence of the hush money paid to Stormy Daniels. I mean, they wanted all of my communications with Stormy's lawyers, Avenatti, Keith Davidson, with others, and the guy before him. I mean, they wanted our text messages, voice recordings, emails. They wanted all of it. And this is new information for District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who after starting and stopping once before, is finally escalating this case and impaneling a grand jury. 
I've met with the Southern District now 14 times, and to me, it all indicates that Bragg is looking to criminally charge Trump for Stormy Daniels, if for no other reason, because it's an easy case to prove. I know you probably are reluctant to share with us everything you shared with them, but I imagine you're one of the important witnesses as they present this case to the grand jury. Well, I did go to prison for Donald's dirty deed, and I did point the finger and state specifically that what I had done, meaning the NDA and the payment of the $130,000 to Stormy Daniels' attorney, Keith Davidson, was done at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump, who I described as co-conspirator number one. This is a deep and sort of difficult story to report on because it's got so many moving parts. And tell me this doesn't sound like a super far-right conspiracy theory. A rogue U.S. Attorney General tampers with multiple cases that implicate the corrupt president that he's vowed to protect. Now go ahead and add a bunch of fucking MAGA asshats and Rudy Kaludi drunken Giuliani. Are you concerned that that was paid for to manipulate the American people in the lead-up to an election? Isn't that closer to the mandate? than Michael Cohen. Why isn't that having something? Where's Mueller on that, sir? Having, having, having something to do with paying some Stormy Daniels woman 130000 I mean, which is going to turn out to be perfectly legal. That money was not campaign money. Sorry, I'm giving you a fact now that you don't know. It's not campaign money. No campaign finance violation. That's a fucking miniseries right there. In it, I'm the fucking fall guy. I go to jail and become a political prisoner. Meantime, that mob boss style president and his fucking hatchet man, as Ellie Honig refers to Bill Barr in his book, go on to perpetrate some of the biggest crimes in American history. I mean, seriously, come on. Now try to pitch this story in Hollywood and they give you a hard pass. House of Cards has already been done. And yet, the difference this is all true. Something I've learned from the entire experience is that the real criminals figure out how to get away with shit and what better place to hide than in plain sight. As a public servant, a lawyer, as a judge, as a prosecutor, or even as the president. The reason it's taking so fucking long to nail Trump is because when he goes down, he could very easily take the whole house of cards with him. I killed them both, just like he said I did. But of course, nobody believes it. And nobody ever will. Because that's how good we are at making things disappear. After all that, Trump is still the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. That's, of course, assuming that he runs. Now, polls taken in New Hampshire and South Carolina came out this week, showing that Trump would beat any GOP challenger by double digits. And a national poll taken by Emerson College found that first, DeSantis is still just a fucking MAGA chump who won't make it on the national stage. And two, it's nice that Nikki Haley, the daughter of Native Americans, wants to run. I mean, she'd be the first woman and the first woman of color to win the Republican nomination. But as of this moment, Haley is basically invisible to Republican voters 
who seem to only have their eyes on for Donald J. Trump. I mean, as crazy as that shit is. And we will forget that any of this ever happened. Because if you don't, I swear to God, I will never, ever forget. Generational wealth can be a real killer. Like Trump, disgraced South Carolina lawyer Alex Murdaugh is one of those cases of white, wealthy privilege gone very fucking wrong. Like Trump, Murdaugh followed in his father's footsteps. And like Trump, he grew up to be a good criminal, cutting corners and robbing clients. Lying. He's also never had to take responsibility for any of his actions. Until now. Because Murdoch sat in a South Carolina courtroom on Tuesday, bobbing back and forth in his seat and whimpering as he heard a recording that put him at the scene of his wife and his son's murder, disproving earlier claims that Murdoch made, saying that he wasn't present at the scene of the crime. The trial of Alec Murdoch is underway. The renowned South Carolina attorney is accused of murdering his wife Maggie and his son Paul. Now, prosecutors say that he shot them to death on June 7th, 2021 on their family property. And after week one, there is a lot to talk about. On Wednesday, a witness confirmed that he was 100% sure that the voice on the recording was that of Alex Murdoch. At 8, 44, and 55 seconds, Paul recorded a video. He was down in the kennels because he had been talking to a friend of his. And you're going to hear from this friend because his friend's dog was in the kennels and they thought there was something wrong with the tail. And Paul was recording a video of it to send to his friend. 8.44 and 55 seconds. And on that video, and you'll see that video, and you'll hear from witnesses that identify Paul's voice, Maggie's voice, and Ellen's voice. The list of shit this fraudulent fucking southern wannabe gentleman has done is just too long to go into. But it's proof that when undisciplined young scions from old family money go unchecked, their bad behavior only escalates. It's Murdoch's case. He ended up killing his wife and youngest child, mostly, what they're saying, for money. Then the law started to close in, so he staged his own death. And I bet he still thinks he can get away with that. But who knows? We'll see. Well, just a quick fact check. Matt Gates lost three missions in his six years of not serving in Congress. And the Hurricane Michael response, which I actually was a response agent for, uh, was a very difficultly managed one. If you ask anybody in Panama City and Mexico Beach how that's going for them, it was a botched response from start to finish. And I would know because I was tasked with finding the bodies. And Matt Gates voted against recovery aid, not just for Hurricane, our most recent one in Ian, but he also voted against recovering losses for timber companies. He also voted against the American Wildfire Recovery Act. He's voted against natural disasters at every possible turn. If you send me back to Congress, I'll keep voting against anything that is titled disaster relief. In yet another case of a bad apple falling way too close to the family tree, 
whistleblower Rebecca Jones of Florida confirmed Wednesday that she has been doing a deep dive into Matt Gates's criminality and is now turning her findings over to the press. I found this quote from a 2021 Politico article called Before Matt Gates burst onto the national political scene as a sharp tongue attention-grabbing defender of Donald Trump, he was best known in Florida as Baby Gates. The nickname underscores how much he lived in the shadow of his dad, former Florida State Senator Papa Don Gates, a powerful and hard-nosed negotiator who lorded over politics in the panhandle for a generation and paved baby's way into Florida politics. Republican Congressman Matt Gates holds a seat. He is, of course, now facing potential legal troubles and a challenger who made her name defying the law herself. Rebecca Jones, the data scientist fired in the scandal over COVID case numbers from Florida's health department. Jones became something of a darling to critics of Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. You might recall her dramatic arrest last December or her stint in jail in January. But but since then, Jones has been suspended from Twitter. And as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, she's running for Congress and in a contest full of drama. Cruel, corrupt, and criminal. Just some of the names being flung at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Republican Congressman Matt Gates by Rebecca Jones, who is running to take Gates' seat. All I've ever wanted to do was help people. Papa also saved baby's ass when he faced sex trafficking charges that had been corroborated by baby's wingman and now convicted felon Matt Greenberg. Baby Gates has yet to be charged. Interestingly enough, it sounds exactly like you're talking about Haiti. Papa Doc, Doc Doc, Baby Doc, who knows, they're all a bunch of docs. Well, Papa's not going to be happy with what whistleblower Jones claims she's dug up on young Matt, Baby Gates. Matt Venmo motherfucking Gates just said he is glad to be in a room where he is one of the oldest ones there. Again, the same fuck who sought a pardon related to Justice Department's sex trafficking problem. Like seriously, conservatives, do you hate your fucking kid? Do you hope they wind up with him? This little Jeffrey Epstein light bullshit? You nasty as fuck. Arrest him already. TikTok, motherfuckers. TikTok, ew. She tweeted, and I quote, I've spoken to 13 current and former Gates staffers, three close friends, a relative, two ex-lovers, a bartender from his favorite bar, two former stylists, a desk clerk at a hotel he frequents, and two things stand out. First, every single one of them personally observed proof of sex trafficking, illicit drug use, underage drinking, partying, affairs, and or financial crimes. We will see what a judge thinks about that. And secondly, out of 23 sources, only one, only one says the DOJ ever interviewed them or even reached out about Matt's crimes. Gates is said to have paid the boys and girls he had sex with, and when asked about it, his answer was, is it a crime to be generous to your lovers? What? Come on, man. In the case of baby Gates, yes, it's definitely a crime. Now we'll wait and see if Papa can get him out of it this time. And lastly, a quick follow-up to the Paul Pelosi story. Drop the hammer. Um, nope. 
This body cam video of David DePap attacking Paul Pelosi, the husband of former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, was released Friday morning by the San Francisco DA's office. Prosecutors say it shows DePap holding a hammer as police responded to a 911 call from the Pelosi home in Pacific Heights. DePap strikes Pelosi in the head, knocking him to the floor. Hours later, I received a phone call from DePab while I was in the KTVU newsroom. Now that you all have seen the body cam footage, I have an important message for everyone in America. You're welcome. Now Wednesday, it was reported that Pelosi's attacker, the bozo that broke in with a hammer, called a San Francisco journalist from jail and had a few choice things to say. DePap offers an apology, not for the attack that seriously injured Pelosi and left him hospitalized for several days with a fractured skull. The apology was for what he says he didn't get to do. I want to apologize to everyone. I messed up. What I did was really bad. I'm so sorry. I didn't get more of them. It's my own fault. No one else is to blame. I should have come better prepared. I mean, are you fucking serious? Anymore, it's hard to tell the conspiracy theories from the real thing. But I ask you, is it possible that the MAGA right is creating all this crazy conspiracy bullshit to distract us from what they're really trying to hide? Now, as someone who has been on the inside, I would say yes, that's exactly what they're trying to do. And now for the main event. Today we welcome to the show one of our favorite people from the Lincoln Project, Tara Setmayer. Setmayer is a former CNN political commentator, a contributor to ABC News, and a former GOP communications director on Capitol Hill. She's appeared on ABC's The View, ABC's Good Morning America, the HBO Real Time with Bill Maher. I mean, Setmayer was named a Harvard Institute of Politics Spring 2020 Resident Fellow. Also in 2020, she joined the Lincoln Project as a senior advisor. Setmayer hosts the live show The Breakdown alongside her co-founder Rick Wilson on the organization's streaming channel, LPTV. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so hey Tara, it's great to have you back on the show. It's been a while. It has. Now, I love the work, and I say it all the time, right? I love the work that you do with Lincoln Project, and you're right. You all do live rent-free in Donald's head, right? But tell me if you would, no matter what happens to Trump, indictments or not, do you think that he has a chance of becoming the GOP presidential nominee in 2024? Uh, yes. And thank you for having me back, Michael. It's always a pleasure and it's always a good time to chat with you. And um, you're right about what we do over here at Lincoln Project. Trump just can't quit us. And he constantly, he constantly attacks us by name. And we, we just have to chuckle about that because you look at all these other political organizations out here um, and none of them were targeted by the Department of Justice per Donald Trump's request. If people remember, we found out through Mike Pence's book and some other uh, January 6th re revelations that uh, Trump wanted us to be, wanted the Department of Justice to go after us and stop us after we put out that that ad in 2020, letting him know, like, 
Mike Pence is going to be the one that that seals the coffin on your election fraud nonsense. And so, huh. you know, no, no other organization seems to live in his head the way we do. And uh, that just tells you that he fears us and he should because we are we we know how to defeat him and we've done it before and we'll we'll hopefully do it again. Um, the fight continues. But to answer your question, because it all kind of ties into that, we do believe that Trump has a the, the greatest chance of being the Republican nominee again in 2024, much to the chagrin of us who have fought to keep this guy out of uh, office because of a few a few reasons. One, you don't have to take my word for it. Politico this week just wrote a whole thing about how, um, given how many Republicans are looking to jump into this race, the, po- mm-hmm. the plurality of multiple Republican candidates could hand this nomination right back to Trump again, which is why, if you notice, he said what he said about Nikki Haley. Sure, let her if she wants. I mean, you know, that's fine. Yeah, that is coming from Chris Lasavita and some of his new advisors that he has that are actually real Republican experienced operatives. This is not the campaign of 2016 or even 2020. These are people who are serious and understand how the politics actually work. So there's still a clown show there, but he's also hired some serious people that know how to play the game. Who, who has he, who has he hired? Well, Chris, because the only thing that I see Wiles know what they're doing Uh on the campaign. And he's actually and he's actually hired them. I mean, yes. So there's real staff here. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, we haven't seen the FBC I'm still report waiting. yet, but <laughs> allegedly. Right. I haven't seen it either. Allegedly. But what I also love, just to add to what you're yeah. saying, is the way that he's already attacking Ron DeSantis about how disloyal it would be if Ron DeSantis made the decision to run in 2024, knowing and seeing the polls that come out, and of course, if the polls aren't in his favor, the first thing he does is he questions the validity and the accuracy of the polls. Right. But every poll so far that's out there has Ron DeSantis ahead of Trump, minimum 18 points, minimum, with 21 being the most that I've seen so far. And that includes the state of Florida that Donald is now a resident of. It's amazing because he, right, in New York, he's fucking hated. In Florida, he's losing to the governor who, I can't say he's not popular in Florida amongst certainly a pretty significant group of people, but nationwide, he doesn't carry the same favorability ratings. Jump into that. Yeah, no, he uh, it's interesting because the polls have been all over the place, you know, and, um, you know, excuse me if I don't believe polls the way I used to. Now, the polling industry is so broken. But the fact that there's any polls out there that show Trump losing to Ron DeSantis is significant because he reads all of these polls. And he also is threatened by DeSantis and DeSantis World's um, potential coalescing of some of the establishment people who supported Trump before, particularly the donor class. So he knows that he needs to try to take out DeSantis and discredit him early on. And when I say to you, people like Chris Lasavita and Susie Wiles are important additions to his campaign circle. Susie Wiles was on Ron DeSantis's campaign for governor the first time. She knows where all the bodies are buried with Ron DeSantis, which is why I've said DeSantis won't last one round in the ring with Donald Trump. When Trump world's onslaught 
is unleashed on Ron DeSantis, he will wither. He he has a political glass chin. He doesn't have the charisma that Trump has. And Trump made him. Let's be honest. He was a D-list freaking congressman from Florida before Donald Trump decided to back him. So all of that, you know, he, Ron DeSantis is feeling himself a little bit and he's, you know, got a little swagger here, but he needs to understand he, he doesn't have what it takes to take out Donald Trump. And it can be like a Scott Walker or Jeb Bush situation all over again, where the establishment Republicans, the gentry Republicans think that this guy is going to be the savior and they flame out. So I, if I were DeSantis, I wouldn't run in 2024. He's a young guy. Wait, wait your turn. Let the other ones get bloodied. And let tr- and and you know and Trump can whatever happens to Trump, but DeSantis is not going to beat him, and he could potentially ruin his political career <laughs> by going up against him in 2024. So it, it's very interesting to watch this unfold. But I uh, I'm here for it. I've got the popcorn ready. If you see Time Magazine in the current edition. They have an article which is entitled Why Donald Trump's Claim to the 2024 Nomination is Far From Certain. Now, what I found the most interesting in this article is it starts off talking about a 47-year-old woman by the name of Jennifer Dinsmore who's standing online, and it's in southern New Hampshire, In order to welcome President Donald J. Trump, well, I should say former President Donald J. Trump, to some arena where he was going to be making a speech and all that shit. And they asked her a bunch of questions specifically about whether or not she supports the ex-president. And her response was, and it's a response that I want to throw up from Hmm. Because it's so stupid. She says, and I quote, Oh, I support Trump 110%. The mom of two told the reporter as temperatures hovered in the low 40s and the nearby parking lot reached its capacity and then some. That statement bothers me because anybody who has half a brain knows that you can't give or you can't support more than 100%. There is no such number in support greater than 100%. So is she saying it for effect? Is she saying because she's stupid? I have no idea. But then she goes on to say, he took charge of the economy. Wrong. Okay? In fact, he, he added more money, I think by three times the amount than any president in U.S. history to the deficit. So he certainly didn't take charge of the economy. Next one, he closed our borders. Right? No, he didn't. In fact, all he did is repair a bunch of southern border wall that had fallen down from old age or knocked down or whatever it was. He just put it back up. Then he... Turns around and she goes, he made America safe. Really? Why don't you turn around and ask the the countless children that were killed based upon gun violence or the shooting that took place in Vegas from, what was it, the MGM or so. America was far from safe. Anti-Semitism, right? Um, Attacks upon blacks, attacks upon uh, Asian Americans were at all-time highs. And 
still increasing as a direct result. He certainly did not make America safe. So I'm going to give that another. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, give me a goddamn break. Um, you know, when Trump was leading, there was no high inflation, no high gas prices. This is clearly somebody who has no clue what the hell they're talking about. But but she votes. She then turned. Exactly. <laughs> She's a voter. But then they go on to say she can't help but be curious about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's emerging as a looming threat to Trump in the primary. And goes on to talk about that whole business, which is why I say that despite the fact that he may have been a delisted, um, you know, governor, um, very much like the delisted celebs that he used to hang, you know, we used to bring on for The Apprentice. He likes D because that's the first letter of his name. <laughs> um, the bottom line is Ron DeSantis is truly a threat to Donald getting without any hesitation the nomination. But then there are others. You have Nikki Haley. You have um, possibly Elizabeth Warren. You also have um, McCain, uh, you know, who said that she will run Adam Kinzinger. I mean, there are enough people that are out there. Do I think that they could win if they primary Trump? I don't know. But one thing for certain, they're going to beat the shit out of him. Yeah. On a debate stage. Yeah. So I think you meant Liz Cheney, um, not McCain. But Liz Cheney. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, look, here's the problem with all that. And as much as I would love to see Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger beat the shit out of Trump on a debate stage, that is helpful only in a general election sense. That's not going to stop him from winning the nomination. If anything, them being in in it helps him win the nomination because of the way Republicans nominate their presidential candidates. It's not like the Democrats. It's very different. For Democrats, they do proportional um, representation, basically. It's not winner-take-all in their in their nominating contests, in their primaries. Mm -hmm. in Re for Republicans, right. it's winner-take-all. That's how he freaking won in 2016, because you had all of these vanity candidacies from Bobby freaking Jindal on down to Carly Fiorina and people that didn't have a snowball's chance in hell staying in the race entirely too long. It split the vote. Donald Trump consolidated his his steady, you know, 25, 30, 35% at the time. And that's all he needed to win, the nomination. So the same thing I see emerging right now is happening because you have Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Glenn Youngkin, Ron DeSantis. I mean, the list is John freaking Bolton. I mean, there are all of these people who claim that they're interested in running and they may run. They're going to throw their hats in the race. We'll find out in the next six months because the first Republican primary debate will be this summer in Wisconsin, I believe, in Milwaukee, which is where the, the convention is going to be. So we'll see because that the, the field will have to be uh, pretty much, uh, you know, more clear at that point when they have the first debate. But if you have all those people, Trump is going to win again. And that's the part that people forget here. He still, despite what people say, he still has enough of enough support within the party 
that he could win with a plurality. That's the fear. If it's just one or two people, okay, so, maybe, maybe they, right. they could take him out. But not if you have all those people in the race. Okay, so let's imagine the worst tariff for a second. I don't want Trump to. gets the nomination. <laughs> okay? Let's just no, say, I know. I'm well, just kidding. I mean, here on, May, here on Maya Culpa, we like to have fun, right? right? right. So Trump gets the nomination. Yep. And we know that he kisses Putin's ass. We know that he's on Putin's side. He thinks that the guy is, he's terrific. He's a terrific guy. He told me he had nothing to do with it. I believed him. And so, right, you think the entire GOP would side with him against Ukraine and then support Russia's attempt to annex a sovereign nation? So uh, a lot of Republicans have taken that perspective already. The rabble rousers over there in the House uh, have threatened Ukraine funding. And there's enough of them to create a problem. And people forget, even though 2022 was relatively successful in our fight to protect democracy because we beat back so many of the MAGA extremists, particularly in like secretary of state races, which makes a huge difference going to 2024 as far as election integrity. um, A lot of those election deniers lost. However, a lot of them still won. And when you have these people, the election denying and the pro-Putin stance, this radical, extremist, dangerous Christian nationalism, this culture of violence that they seem to rationalize, that is growing in the Republican Party. It's being mainstreamed. It's not being diminished. I just saw a story the other day in the Washington Post about a, 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 a network of Nazi homeschoolers in Sandusky, Ohio. And how they have thousands of members of this group and they all get together and they um, support one another. And it's an entire network of Nazi homeschooling parents that are raising their kids, little brown shirts, little Eichmanns. And I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, you know, it's not just Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, my home state of New Jersey, this all this radical extremist um, sentiment. Is, has been bubbling up, bubbling up, and expanding, not diminishing. So when I think of who are the people that will get elected again in the next election cycle if we don't continue to push back and you know shine a light on this, these are people that, God forbid, if Donald Trump is in office again, these are the people that control the purse strings. So absolutely, they would abandon Ukraine, 100%. These are people who elevate Viktor Orban. Or we saw what happened in Brazil, Bolsonaro. They are authoritarian light at this point. And that should scare the hell out of everyone. So 100%, I believe that you would see a Republican Party that would uh, side with Putin over Ukraine. Because again, Ukraine represents an existential fight for democracy around the world. So the Republican Party is no longer on that track. They are now an illiberal, anti-democratic party. Just look at their behavior. I mean, look, let's not forget the first thing that Trump wanted to do is he wanted to hold back on $200 million that was already allocated by Congress Mm -hmm. to go to Ukraine for (laughs) military. And it sure sure Uh did. Hey, I wanted to ask you this. So if you have all of these little Nazi kids together, right? And I'm sure none of them are vaccinated or anything like that because they don't believe in any of that. And they all get colds. Do they then transform into little schnazis? 
Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm just curious. I'm just right, curious. Right, right. Um, well, I'm watching The Last of Us. I don't know if you're watching that on HBO. It's a, an amazing series adapted from the the video game by Craig Mazin, who did uh, Chernobyl. Unbelievable writer and producer. I had the chance of inter- to interview him last year on the breakdown for Lincoln Project, and he's just amazing. But The Last of Us, you know, it's about a basically civilization ending uh, uh, fungi that mutates and like basically kills off the majority of, of the human race in a really fat, quick amount of time. And I, I tell you what, I feel like I say all the time that the, that Trumpism has metastasized and it continues to. And we need to cut out the cancer. Otherwise, you know, people people oftentimes say they just dismiss it as buffoonery or these people are kooks. I mean, you know, we I call it the cacophony of kookery all the time. You know, we come up with little clever names. Mm-hmm. But it's actually very, very serious. And like I said, I, I don't want us to get caught up in some of the tomfoolery of it all and just dismiss it and think that, oh, well, no, Trump is not going to win again. And well, you know, look at the craziest of the crazies didn't win in, in November. We're good now. No, we're not. They are still no, mobilizing and they're very organized and very well financed. And when people are not paying attention, they are continuing to continuing their march and so, you know, they think very long term and strategically oftentimes some of these movements and we need to continue to fight it and pay attention to it and uncover it. Yeah, it's, listen, it's, it's really crazy. It's crazy. I, mean, I, I don't understand. I really don't understand what they're thinking. Um, you know, um, well, it's like a cult. It's like a cult, though, Michael. We've talked cult- about this before, right? I mean, it, 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 it is a cult. I've been calling it a cult since 2018 and before it became cachet to call it a cult. And I, I just, you look at all of the characteristics and the emotional irrationality. You use the example of the woman in New Hampshire and what she believed and how she's like, I'm 110% behind Trump. You look at this woman, she thinks she's doing something patriotic, but she is a patriotic American and that Donald Trump is the only one that can save them. Yet the facts of what he has done, what he produced and what he didn't, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He led a violent insurrection against our government to illegally keep him in power, which is the most anti-American thing you could possibly think of. People have been now convicted of seditious conspiracy. And it doesn't matter to these people. All of a sudden that none of those things matter. Those constitutional principles, they all claim that they live and die for, right? Live free or die. It's New Hampshire. Yeah. No, it doesn't matter. Donald Trump, is he speaks for me and he's the only one that can save us. It's irrational and it's very cult-like. Well, because they because they speak stupid as well, which <laughs> congratulations to them. Yeah. So, Tara, like most of your colleagues at the Lincoln Project, you're a former Republican. Mm-hmm, Twenty seven years. What was the moment of truth for you? Right. When did you finally decide that enough was enough? <laughs> so, um, I, I had threatened to quit the party multiple times after Donald Trump got elected because I just could not stomach what the party was becoming, what they were enabling, people who I'd known, colleagues, friends of mine that I'd known for 20 years in politics, com- just turning into unrecognizable, horrible people. And I thought to myself, this is like the invasion of the body snatchers. I don't know who these people are. They look like my friends and colleagues and people who used to stand on principle, but they don't sound like it anymore. I, these people are despicable. Um, and then they 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 really did become the basket of deplorables that Hillary Clinton got got uh, excoriated for. But she was not wrong. I will say that. Um, 
And so over the years, I thought, I can't do this anymore. And I'll tell you, my very good friend, former RNC chairman, Michael Steele, uh, we're very close. Great guy. And um, I, I love him. He's one of my favorite people in the whole world. And he's one of the few that actually maintained his integrity and did not go to the dark side. And we would have conversations about this. And I would say, Michael, I, I can't. I can't. You know, Charlottesville and then the, 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 I mean, just the litany of things. Charlottesville was really the first time where I finally said, that's it. I'm not giving these people a pass anymore. Um, Trump supporters and Republicans, because I used to say, well, they thought that he would grow into the job and they rationalized it in their minds that we'd get a tax cut and all of that. But after Charlottesville, I did. Yeah, I mean, a lot I of people thought I thought he'd like, grow into, yeah, thought he'd grow into the that. job. A lot of people thought it. And and once we saw how he reacted to Comey and Charlottesville and then what happened with Russia and Putin and in taking the side of intelligence officer, uh, you know, Russian intelligence over our intelligence community, like all of those things. And then the, um, you know, shithole countries and the Muslim ban. And I mean, it was just a litany of things that were just horrifying to me, not only as a Republican, but just as an American. And Michael would always say, yes, but if they run us out, who's going to be there when we finally defeat them? Who's going to be there to rebuild it? We can't let them run us out of our own house. And I would say, okay, okay, fine. We can be more effective fighting them from within. That lasted until after the 2020 election. And we saw in the run-up to 2020 all the signs of potential violence, um, what the Steve Bannons of the world were doing, that, that Roger Stone, all these people laying the predicate for potential violence, not accepting election results. These are things now where you're fucking with the foundation of our constitutional republic. And mm -hmm. I said, OK, if Repu Republicans had umpteen opportunities to off ramp from the sky, but they didn't because they wanted to maintain power. They were worried about elections and losing and okay, fine, whatever. Not okay, but typical behavior of politicians. But after the 2020 election, when Donald Trump came out until the East Wing of the White House and declared election fraud and said he would not concede the election and made all of those outrageous accusations and the Republicans the next day, the Mitch McConnells and the McCarthy's and the people who are supposed to be the adults in the room who know better, when they didn't come out and say enough, we're not doing this. There, you know, this is our this is a, the foundation, one of the cornerstones of our democracy. We're not going to undermine that. And they let Trump run with that stop the steal election fraud bullshit. I said, that's it. And that week I went on the air on the breakdown. And uh, if people follow me on Twitter, I still have it. It's my pinned tweet where you can actually see the moment that I declared that I would no longer be a Republican and that I was going independent mm. and why. That was it for me. I couldn't, I could not anymore take what Donald Trump was doing and the fact that there that Republicans were were willing to burn the Constitution down to placate this motherfucker. And I said, I'm done. And then when January 6th happened, a couple weeks later, I said, Well, I'm I absolutely made the right decision. And at that point, I mean, I, I was never more motivated to make sure these people never win elections again and to protect our democracy after January 6th. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking, what is a um, what is a Nazi grab when they have a cold? What? Mein Kampf for. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, but but you know, going back going back to to Trump, right? I mean, literally from the moment 
from the moment he stood before the American people at the inauguration with his stupid fucking speech. Oh, God. I mean, it's really, if you actually read the transcript on it, mm. it is a stupid fucking speech that if you pull it apart line by line, I'm angry at myself for not realizing while listening to that speech exactly who Donald was and who he was going to continue to be. When he turns around, he stood up there, right? And that robotic sort of look, every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families, right? He goes on, we must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies and destroying our jobs. None of that is true. Oh, I know. None of that is true. No, it's not. It doesn't matter. But then he goes on, no, right. Of course it doesn't matter. And then you get people like this dope, that the very first question I talked to you from uh, New Hampshire, New Hampshire yeah. right? That's sitting there. I said, protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. By the way, that's also a falsity. We are a global economy. You cannot be an isolationist in, 20, in 2020, you know, or 2016. It just doesn't exist that way. I will fight for you with every breath in my body and I will never, ever let you down. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that was just a lie, right? <laughs> America will start winning again. Winning like you've never before. Winning what? Right. And then we By will the bring way. back we right. We will ne- we will bring back our jobs. We will bring back our borders. We'll, what what do you mean we will bring back our jobs? The fact of the matter is, if you think about it, people are coming into America according to Donald by the tens of thousands a day. The millions. Right? We're taking jobs and people away from other countries to bring them here to do jobs that Americans don't want to do. You know, go go poll most Americans and ask them whether or not that they would go pick strawberries so that you can have it in your Whole Foods or in your grocery store or that they're going to go pick, you know, tangerines, nectarines, oranges, apples, whatever it might be. The answer is that they won't. Not for the but wages they, just, they pay them, no. <laughs> That's also for sure yeah. with no benefits and That's so right. on. Right? We will bring back our borders. We never lost our borders. Right? Our borders have always been have been the same for 200 years. We will bring back our wealth. Really? All right? And we will bring back our dreams. Why since when did we lose our dreams? Maybe Nothing that he's saying makes any sense. We will build new roads and highways and bridges and airports and tunnels and railways all across our wonderful nation. Well, somewhere along the line, if you look at any map, just go to your ways and you'll see, yeah, we have roads and highways and it all needs well, to be repaired. Well, he also wasn't able to get, only- he wasn't able to get a bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, which was desperately needed That's- to improve our roads and bridges and airports in this country. He never got that passed. But guess who did? President Joe Biden. And that's gotta that's gotta eat him, you know, eat his kishkas alive because, you know, I'm the great builder. Mm-hmm. No one builds better than me, right? Meanwhile, you couldn't build a fucking hemorrhoid. <laughs> or maybe you can, if you you know, if you tried, because you can't do shit. He can't accomplish anything. And the reason for that is because it's not that the message is always wrong. But he is wrong as the messenger. And that's the thing I don't understand about the GOP. Whether you like whatever he's saying or not, he is the wrong messenger 
for everybody. But then he finishes it off. We will get our people off of welfare and back to work, rebuilding our country with American hands and American labor. There's so many things in that statement that are offensive, offensive. You know, not everybody is on, wants to be on welfare, right? Um, there are people that, true, do not want to get, get off of welfare. They have somehow fallen into that system. And yes, things need to be, again, maybe not entirely the wrong message if you want to be picky and take one or two words out of that sentence. It's the message and how he's portraying it. It is offensive to the core where he's talking about, you know, we will get them off. What it, well, what if somebody doesn't want to get off it? Okay, I, I get it. There has to be rules and systems. What are you going to do? You're going to march your brown shirts there and then send them into the fields? Well, tell me how you're going to do it. If it were up to him, Michael, you know he would. You know he would. He has yeah. this weird obsession nothing with for authority. nothing. You and I would be you and I would be chained to them That's in right. the middle of the fields too. Next to he each other. He doesn't like you at all. Nope. And by the way, even with his truth social about me this morning as a result of the Stormy Daniels oh. district attorney case, he's not he's not too happy with me today. But you and I would both be over there as well oh, yeah. with the uh, with the so-called dregs. Absolutely. And and you know, <laughs> I wear that with a badge of valor actually. If that's who my enemy is, then then I'm fine with that because, um, you know, the, the people that he that ingratiate themselves to him or who he admires, uh, that's not the company I want to keep. So, um, you know, if, for the for those of us who are truth tellers, who hold him accountable, who fight for freedom, who maintained our integrity, who did not. I mean, for you, unfortunately, Michael, it took a huge price for you to pay to see the light, but at least you did. And, you know, that there are I wish there were millions of others who um, similarly recognize the error in their ways by supporting him and what it did to this country, not only domestically, but internationally, as far as our status in the world and our strategic alliances overseas and all the damage that he's done. Like people just have no freaking idea how much damage this guy has done and how much he continues to do because he's still given a platform. Mm -hmm. They're still kissing his ass. Kevin McCarthy is still thanking him and his influence for becoming speaker of the house and Marjorie Taylor green and those despicable pieces of shit that are now elevated with committee assignments and are being treated as if they're normal political actors. Now those are all people that are part of this, this cancer of Trumpism and of, of MAGA and that is alive and well that I feel could put, is outgrowing even him. Even if he were to drop dead tomorrow, these people aren't going away. And what he has unearthed is still very much alive and well like a virus. And we've got to kill it. And I just don't understand the people who feel who who feel complacent or who think that, well, you know, I may not like some of what the Democrats are doing it in schools and and some of their woke whatever uh, agenda. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna vote. I'm gonna vote for Donald Trump because at least he's at least he stands up for us. You know what? <laughs> what are you? Are you yeah. people serious right now? Like I don't get this, but Republicans get this, and the people the people who are on the right wing understand this, which is why they have concentrated so much on the culture war because that is more of a an emotional grab. And people who I'll give you a perfect example. And I don't agree with Democrats on a lot of policy issues on on things, but it doesn't matter to me because nothing else matters but protecting the democracy away from these extremists. And then we can argue once we once we exorcise the country of that, then we can get back to the normal political fights. But 
um, one of my best friends in the whole world. Him and his wife were Republicans. They were Hill staffers. Um, his wife still is. We, um, what, like I said, one of my favorite people in the whole world, witness at my wedding, voted for Biden, voted for Hillary, but in 2021, went back home and voted for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. Why? Because of the school issue. And they, they have a young kid and they were unhappy with, with what they felt was this progressive agenda in schools and the over masking regulations and all of these things and uh, that were going on in, in Northern Virginia schools. And they said, you know what, we, we don't want that anymore. We're, we're voting for Glenn Youngkin. And I said, guys, well, actually I'll take that back. He voted for Youngkin. The wife voted for McAuliffe. So the votes canceled each other out. Thank God. But I could not believe I said, really? Come on, you're going to put Glenn Youngkin in office and you see he's he's supposed to be the the acceptable one because he wears a freaking parka vest like like a Patagonia vest. Like this guy is no different than the Kevin McCarthy's and the others. He may not be a MAGA crazy, but he's willing to kiss their ass to get power. They're more dangerous because they know better. They should know better. So right. I want to change change topics for a second. I want to talk to you about uh, Tyree Nichols, right? Because the the body cam videos that were taken by police, you know, during and after the beating and the killing of this young man, tell a very different story than the police did in their reports. Now. I know it's extraordinarily difficult to prosecute these types of cases, though we're seeing more so now than ever before police officers being held accountable for their actions. I want to ask you your opinion. Were those officers trying to protect themselves or did they not know that, you know, how badly that they had beaten this innocent man? So I, I have a unique perspective on a lot of these policing issues because I come from a law enforcement family. Uh, my grandfather. Hence why I'm asking. Yes. But some of your listeners may not know that. Um, I grew up in Paramus, New Jersey, in, in Bergen County, New Jersey, 15 minutes outside of New York City. My grandfather was one of the first police officers in my hometown and worked his way up to captain and stayed on the force for almost 40 years. So I grew up bleeding blue, uh, blue collar you know, police, firemen, that was how I, how I grew up. And you know, Michael, you're from New York city. There's a certain code and and brotherhood that police officers share with one another that you just don't break, right? The blue wall of silence, the thin blue line, all that, that's all very true. So for me, I'm always very protective of law enforcement. And I think oftentimes they get a bad rap. And in, in the past, in some of the more controversial national cases, whether it was Ferguson or Eric Garner and things like that, I took a very different perspective on it because I understand police tactics. I understand the continuum of force, deadly force, and and it's just a different thing for people who are on the other side of it. I've been through citizen police academies. Um, I worked on federal law enforcement issues when I was in Congress. So I just come from it. I come from a, a different less emotional perspective on it and more of an analytical one just because of my my family background. And I'm currently married to a 23-year federal officer. He's been a federal federal agent for 23 years. So, um, and he's black, by the way, in case anyone is wondering. Um, so it's just, you know, it's just a different perspective. Now, I give you that background to say that looking at the Memphis case, 
this is a little bit different. <laughs> this is different than Freddie Gray. It's different than Michael Brown. It's different than um, some of the other more controversial cases uh, where use of deadly force was in question. This was a blatant violation of Tyree Nichols' civil rights, of his humanity, and it was incredibly unprofessional, and it almost felt personal. What were these guys doing? It did, right? Yes, it did. It felt personal it to did. me. I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm so with you. And first of all, I want people to understand, and I said this on uh, MSNBC with Nicole Wallace the other day. I backed the blue. Right, I too. know that when I walk the streets and or I'm in the subway and I see police officers, I feel safe. I thank each and every one of them when I pass them for mm -hmm. their service. Many, of course, who recognize me, you know, so we catch eyes. I thank them for their service. I thank them for putting on the uniform, for wearing that badge and keeping us all safe. Mm -hmm. But this one seemed personal. Yeah. Let me tell you, when I saw them lift this young man up with his hands cuffed behind his back, I got... A just I was bombarded by all sorts of PTSD emotion for when I was cuffed and shackled on several occasions. And I started thinking to myself, what if the guys, the correctional officers, the police officers that had me in their custody decided to beat the living shit out of you? Hold them up, hold them up. It was so like Goodfellas. Stand him up, stand him yeah. up. It reminded me of the scene where Joe Pesci, right, where they're beating up the guy in the thing because he disrespected him, told him, go get your shoe shine box. That's right. Right? And so it was fucking personal, and I don't care what anybody said. There's something there because this is not how Blue behaves, and none of us should turn around and think for a split second that this is the way that our men and women in law enforcement behave. There's always the odd one out. There's always these scenarios. But these guys took it to a whole nother level. They did. And it was painful. It was. And it was, you know, it, it took a couple of angles before we, you really realized the severity of what they did. Um, and as it, my husband and I happened to watch the video in real time, like everybody else did on Friday. We yeah. He was off work and we were watching it together. And watching it from his perspective, too, uh, as a black federal officer, he kept saying, like, where's the training? This is completely against everything we're trained to do. How how come it takes eight, five or six of them to get this guy under control? How much is he? Wet? Look at this. This is he goes. He was just horrified by how how off book all of it was. Now, the unfortunate reality is this does happen every day across this country. There are, you know, it happens more often than we want to admit to. There is a cultural problem in some of these departments. And that stems from the top down. That though that that needs to change. There are some things that really we need to examine with policing in this country. And I, 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 there's a part of me that feels like the oversaturation of the coverage of this case is it's a, too much. I mean, it's horrible and we need to know it. But there but then we need to also shine a light on culturally where this is a problem in other departments and th that doesn't even have to have to do with race because a lot of times these other controversies there's been a racial undertone to it that has been taken away a bit from this because it's all black officers with a black victim um, yeah, so but, does that make this case different 
It does make it different. It does because it, you know, a lot of times the, in some of the other controversial cases, it has been, there's the racial components just add a, uh, a more passionate element to it where, because the history of racism and policing against black Americans in this, in this country is so awful and ugly that you cannot ignore that. And unfortunately there are still elements of that that exist, that power structure from the overseer days back during slavery. I mean, there's a long history of discrimination and policing against black Americans in this country that often is unearthed during those other cases. This time, it, because it is black on black, it it allows for a broader conversation into some of the problems with this more aggressive policing in high crime areas and what works and what doesn't. I mean, you have, and, and I also think, uh, and I'm glad to see that there weren't violent protests this time, um, protests, but peaceful for the most part, because it was, they reacted quickly you had a black female police uh, chief of police. She was she had the ability because not every police department has a chief that has the ability to fire officers. Every police department has a different um, mechanism in place for how you dismiss officers. So in some of the other cases, they couldn't fire them right away. There's a process almost mm -hmm. like civil servants. You just can't fire federal workers There's a process. But in this case, the part of the collective bargaining agreement in, in Memphis was that the chief of police has this ability to unilaterally fire. So that was helpful in this case. Um, the charges were brought quickly. There was not an overcharging. Some people might argue that there were. But like in the Freddie Gray case in Baltimore, they overcharged. They responded to the reaction of the people and they overcharged. And those f officers ended up getting um, acquitted as a result of that, um, which a lot of people felt was a travesty. So in this case, a lot of things went right in the way that the de police department handled it, which I think tamped down some of the more um, violent protests that we've seen in the past where people are so frustrated because they feel as though there hasn't been transparency. So that's the good side. The bad side is that these officers, um, in my opinion, are a disgrace to the badge. I'm glad that they were charged. They should be. There is no reason whatsoever for that amount of officers to exude that amount of force on someone. A, did he did he shoot a police officer? Was he armed? Was he an armed robber? Did he just kidnap kids? Like what what was the predicate? And even then, they shouldn't really be. You shouldn't ever be be uh, attacking a a, a a subject that's handcuffed that can't defend himself. Like because he's no longer a threat to you at that point. So what are you doing? Um, but what what was the predicate for all of this? Uh, it felt personal. They felt that they it looked to me like they were on a power trip. And those are the absolute wrong people that should ever have a badge and a gun. They have disgraced yeah, their, I, they have disgraced themselves in the Tara, profession. Tara, I, it looked they, more. Yeah, yeah. I hate to say it, it. It looked like it was more than just a power trip. I mean, it was, it's, it almost looked as if though, you know, he had maybe a, a sexual relation with one of their wives or one of their spouses. This was so personal. It's to funny me. you should say that. And, I saw something and I'm tell on the you, internet the thing, that, the thing that, that alluded broke, to that. Actually, I, I don't know how true it is, but there was something on uh, on Twitter where someone said that that uh, Tyree Nichols may have had a relationship with one of the officers' ex girlfriends, and because you see him taking pictures, and that they both worked at FedEx. And I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I, we'll find out as the trial, Eventually, you know, the trial comes yeah. and. We'll get more information about whether there was any relationship there. Um, I don't know, but regardless, that they 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 should all be under the jail for it. You know, all I can tell you is that my heart sunk. I had tears, legitimate, rolling down my face 
as I listened to that mom yeah. sit there, as I listened to this Horrible. young man calling out for his mother mm-hmm. and so on, yep. you know, yeah. my, my heart went out for her sure. to have to watch that video and so on. But at the, you know, listen, he's not the only one, Tyree, and you, you made a great point. People are unaware of how often that this is happening mm-hmm. around the country. And again, we all have to not just back but respect those that are wearing the uniform. But I do want to also mention that not more than 10 days before this senseless beating and killing of Tyree Nichols, there was another case that took place in Los Angeles where they... Um, tased four times a young man. His name was Keenan Darnell Anderson. But most people never heard that name before. Right. He was tased four times by police officers. And after several hours and getting him then to the hospital, he passed. This shit has to stop. It has to stop. And, you know, it's... If you noticed when... Tyree jumped up and ran. He didn't run to get away to avoid police giving him a ticket or whatever the hell that no, they he were really, going to give literally him. ran he for his ran life. He ran for fear of his life. Yeah. And it was yeah. almost as if he knew what was going to happen. It's really, you well, know, a shame. But he I, may have. He may I, have. Just to make a quick point that that Scorpion unit was known um, as if, if you read local stories down there in the Memphis press they were known as the, quote, jump out boys. So this unit mm-hmm. that was a specialized unit that, that had been formed about two years ago was supposed to patrol in high crime areas in Memphis, similar to other units across the country. A lot of departments have units like this. In, in Atlanta, they had one called, I think it was called the uh, Red Team Unit or something like that, that this police chief actually, she, was, she came from Atlanta. So she was familiar with that. New York, right? You had the uh, anti-crime unit, which was controversial because of those stop and frisk tactics. Um, it all goes back to kind of the broken windows policing strategy of tough on crime. You stop the smaller crimes mm-hmm. and then, you, you know, it, it stops the bigger crimes. Um, and so that's the philosophy. But unfortunately, it has violated a lot of civil rights of people. And it's controversial, particularly in high crime minority areas where people are not treated like human beings. And so this unit in particular, which is now shut down, which was the right thing to do, Either they weren't they were given a different set of rules or they were they didn't have proper supervision. There is a problem with frontline supervisors Mm -hmm. and sergeants. Where the hell was the sergeant who should have been there to say, whoa, 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 what are we doing here? Um, There's like I said, there's a multi layer problem here that needs to be looked into further as far as policing across the country to improve police, because it's a cliche expression. But, you know, nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And there are way more good cops out there than bad ones. But unfortunately, the bad ones have the largest impact. We don't hear about the good ones too too often. We hear about the bad ones. So people think there's a disproportionate amount of the bad ones. Um, And but but there is enough of a problem that it needs to be fixed. And I'm going to mention two quick things. My very good friend, Dr. Errol Southers, he's out there at the University of Southern California. He ran their extremism center there. I think he has a different uh, different job now at USC. But he was an FBI agent SWAT team. He ran the Los Angeles uh, airport transit police out there. Uh, he w- he worked under the Obama administration. He's a total badass, actually, but a really humble guy. And Dr. Southers 
uh, for years has been developing something called the Lewis Registry, named after the, it's an acronym, but named after um, John Lewis, the civil rights hero and congressman. Um, and it, what it is, is it's a national registry, a database for police misconduct, because we saw the problem of of these bad cops that get fired at one police department. They go to a police department in another state or another county and they don't know because there's no database of the disciplinary records. So a lot of these cops that have disciplinary records were able to escape that scrutiny because there's no way to look it up. So he has been able to launch this at a national database to help prevent bad cops going to other police mm. departments called the Lewis Registry. And um, that's Dr. Errol Souther. So shout out to him for that. Great work. Um, also, another example, which I've seen in, in training during in police academies, the New Haven, Connecticut, in it, their police department decided in response to some police brutality issues in their city, they decided to start mandatory community policing during their training, during their academy time to get these officers into the communities that they will be patrolling earlier so that when they come out of the academy, they already have some familiarity with these communities. And it's all about establishing that trust and those relationships and the instances of complaints and, and against the police and those questionable um, interactions has dramatically mm -hmm. decreased. And so that is something increasing community policing, getting more people from the community to become officers. So they already have a certain attachment to this and they treat people more humanely, not just as another statistics or a statistic or number or perp or whatever. That makes a huge, huge difference in interactions with police. So these are things that are along with criminal justice reform and all those other things. But those are just some of those things that are happening in the police reform space uh, uh, that are good things that are helping to improve community police relationships. Also, citizen right. and I, too. Those are important too. That's also important. Boards. But I want people. I want people to understand that Scorpion itself is an acronym and it stands for Street Crime Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods. And yeah, they <laughs> they, they have the, the reputation. Hell out of that, they have a reputation. That's for sure. They have a reputation of being incredibly, incredibly rough. You know, I want to ask you while, while we're while we're moving forward here, you know, how do you think that Kevin McCarthy's doing as the House leader so far? I mean, you know, as expected or worse than, you know, than you imagine that he would be. And do you think that any of the folks like Biggs or Green or Jim Jordan, you know, who were aligned with Trump during the January 6th insurrection will ever be held accountable, will be indicted during their term? Anything, anything like that popping to your mind? So I'll start with the, um, the coup caucus fuckers that you just mentioned just now. <laughs> um, it, there's nothing more infuriating and more that just gives me a visceral reaction than seeing people like Marjorie Taylor Greene being treated as normal political actors now and seeing her elevated into positions of power on respectable committees like oversight and homeland security. It's the world turned upside down. So what, how, what do you tell your children when you look at this? You know, how do you tell them not to behave badly? Because in this world and in, in the Republican world, you, the more badly you behave, the more rewarded you are because from Donald Trump on down, there is no shame. There is no integrity. There's d dishonesty and hypocrisy are the, their currency, bullying, extremism, lying. All, these are all that that's their currency. And 
the fact that Kevin McCarthy would be so much of a duplicitous, lying coward that he would never stand up to these people and say, not on my watch. This is not what we're doing. This is not what the Republican Party stands for. This is not what our country should be, you know, should become. He never did any of that. None of them did, except for Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. None of them did. They've all gone along with this. And so you have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar and Matt Gates and all of these, these, these pro-insurrectionist, despicable, lying pieces of shit that are now on committees and given they're given airtime on national cable. They're being quoted in New York Times yep. stories now as if we should give a fuck what Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks about anything. I don't want to hear a word out of that anti-Semite, racist, QAnon, kook bitch's mouth. I don't want to hear anything from her. But what happens? <laughs> She's now yep. besties with Kevin McCarthy, and he's taking selfies with her, smiling They're with that Talking about grin. her being a potential vice presidential that's, nominee. That's, you know, insane. if in fact Trump ends up getting the nomination. It is. But, you know, since I got you all good and going, I do have to ask you this. What do you make of Candace Owens? Who's she trying to save? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say very limited about Candace Owens because I don't think she's worthy of my oxygen on her. Um, she's a, a miserable, self-loathing, self-hating individual that I hope she one day gets the help that she needs. That's all I'm going to say about her. Okay, on that one. Again, as a person who's been on both sides of the aisle... What do you think is the best way, you know, for Democrats or would-be Democrats to win over Republicans at this point? I mean, because there's plenty of disappointment on both sides. Do you think that maybe it's a viable third party? Do you think that maybe it's let's just wash our hands of everyone that's there right now and start fresh? Start fresh with people who, let's say, give more of a shit about serving the people than themselves. What do we do? So prior to November of 2020, I would have said that we can start from within with the good Republicans who are still around and turn this thing around um, once Trump was defeated and Trumpism was repudiated. Unfortunately, it was a split decision. Trump may have been defeated, but Trumpism was not repudiated. If anything, it actually grew. And so um, after January 6th, watching how 140 Republicans just survived a violent insurrection to overthrow the government in, a, in an attempted coup led by their president, um, still went in and voted not to certify President Biden's fair election and lawful elect constitutional election told me that this party is irredeemable. They are irredeemable. There are no more good Republicans of, of any um, that are in any position of power anymore. Anyone who tells you that there is still hope for this Republican party, they're, they're delusional. It needs to be burned to the ground. It may take a generation to recover, uh, but I do not see one iota of redeemability in this current Republican Party. We just talked about Kevin McCarthy elevating people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, and, and dozens of others who are despicable, anti-democracy, 
um, pro-Putin, pro-conspiracy theory, racist anti-Semites, <laughs> okay? These are people now that are accepted into the mainstream of the Republican Party. How is this, how do you redeem it when people like that are running it? Look at who runs the RNC. Look at who these state party chairmen are. Look at who these people are down, uh, you know, down ballot at state and localities. They're run by, with with very few exceptions, they are run by MAGA extremists. So um, at this point, no, I don't think the Republican Party is is redeemable. It's the know nothing party um, pre Civil War, and I think it needs to go the way of the Whigs. What replaces it? That's a bigger challenge because of the way our our election system is set up. It's so incredibly difficult to start a new party. I know there's some friends of mine who are involved in trying to do a third party effort and God bless them. Um, I just don't see the way they're going about it being successful in the next election or two because of the incredible amounts of money you need. I mean, you need you need Jeff Bezos, Michael Bloomberg type money behind a 50 ballot access third party uh, attempt to make a dent in anything the way our and then the question is. right the, the question then becomes which party gets hurt as a direct result right who's going to be right the ralph nader who's going to be the spoiler so look it's Tara, tough but people are wanted it's though, very right tough. people want it the largest group of registered voters in the country now are unaffiliated or independents yep so that's you know true. people the american people are hungry for it but the changing the system it's structural whether it's closed primaries, that's the first thing that needs to go, by the way. Open up these so, primaries in each state so that you so that you can weed out some of the more radical candidates in the primary system. Start, let's start there. Yeah, wouldn't that be something? So look, Tara, the hour goes by very, very quickly <laughs> here on Maya Culpa. You know that from your past sure. um, appearances here. Last question. We all saw the other day that this incredibly handsome, brilliant, warm guy, I think his name was something like Michael Cohen, um, <laughs> was was brought up. Uh, in fact, Newsweek came out yesterday with an article, Donald Trump's former fixer, now one of his greatest threats. There is a multitude of litigation plaguing the Mandarin Mussolini. Question to you. That's a good Which one. one do you think is the one that's going to be the most significant in terms of stopping him. And I got to be honest with you, and it's not because they're trying to insert me into the dead center of this district attorney criminal matter, but I do, and I have always said the same thing, that I believe that this district attorney, Alvin Bragg, taking over for Cy Vance, that this case is by far the most damaging immediate case to Donald Trump than all of the others. What's your opinion on this? So it's, um, you know, you look at this and there's so many, right? There's just so many, which is just mind-blowing to begin with because you're like, this is a former president of the United States who's actually a viable candidate to run and potentially win again with all of this very serious litigation facing him from uh, whether it's the the national security documents case down to the January 6th stuff to the financial crimes. I mean, it's it's the, the, the sexual assault allegations like it's it's the litany is just incredible. But it seems not to matter to a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, well, not to the people who, you know, his cultists. It should matter to the sensible Americans, the ones that rejected him. And thank God there were more of us than the rest of them. But it was too close for comfort for me. 
Which one? I mean, I always felt that financial crimes would be some the, the most uh, threatening to Trump be- for a couple of reasons. One, because it's numbers and it's tangible and it's difficult to deny the evidence in those types of cases versus, oh, someone's out to get you. And well, what, you know, they do what about ism on some stuff like the case that you're involved in. And, you know, what we what we see with some of these, you know, the the financial crimes cases are the ones that I think would be the most dangerous to him, not only from a legal perspective, but also to his brand, because you not you know more better than anyone that he lives and dies by his brand of being this successful Mm -hmm. businessman, this uber wealthy guy, um, which we all know is not true. And but this would destroy that image for him and be the most embarrassing for him. I think, which would I think would he would wither, he would wither from it if there were if it finally came to him being held accountable for it, since he's never been held accountable for anything in his 50 years of in being in business, whether it was with his father uh, through what happened in Atlantic City, running around with the mafia, the questionable deals, Deutsche Bank, all, you know, all of that stuff is should be. I, I hope they nail him on that. As much as I would love for them to nail him on, on what happened on January 6th and the national security documents case, which now, in my opinion, has been undermined because of what happened with Biden. Unfortunately, even though the cases are very different, it doesn't matter politically. People think, oh, well, he did it too. So what's the big deal? I think that really hurts uh, the Department of Justice's ability to go after Trump the way they should for what he's done yeah. with obstruction of justice and God knows what else he was doing with those documents as opposed to Biden, where it was just sloppy um, organization. I don't think he had any grand oh, They plot. both, listen, they're both, they're both, what do you call it, responsible. Correct. I don't care. You take one document. If you took one document, you'd be in prison, right? Yeah. I paid a porn star at the direction of and for the benefit of Trump. I went to prison for it. Accountability yeah. for it these matters. matters yeah. needs to happen. You know, it's, it I'm going to leave it on, on this last note, but, you know, Trump um, went after me uh, this morning on his untruth social platform, <laughs> which I didn't even know was still up and running. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, the thousand people that he has, you know, on it, mostly, of course, family and employees, uh, must have thought this is interesting. But he writes, right? He writes in this untrue social, with respect to the stormy nonsense, it is very old, capitalized, and happened a long time ago, long past the very publicly known and accepted deadline of the statute of limitations. Now, all of a sudden, he thinks he understands statute of limitations. But yeah. he goes, I placed full reliance on the judgment, all caps, and advice of counsel, spelled wrong. It's not C-O-U-N-C-I-L, you dumb fuck. Right. It's C-O-U-N-S-E-L. Anyway, who I had every reason to believe had a license to practice law, was competent, and was able to appropriately provide solid legal services. He came from a good law firm, represented other clients over the years, and there was no, again in capital, reason not to rely on him as I did. This is very clever on his part. What he's trying to do is to set up a defense on this that it's all detrimental reliance, you know, on his attorney and so on, that the second he directed me to pay it, I should have told him, no, it's not legal to do an NDA, yada, yada. It's a wonderful attempt to do what Donald does best, deflect, deflect. It's never his fault. And he's going to do the same to his accountants when it comes to any 
mistakes in terms of filing, because in this case as well, he tried to take the Stormy Daniels payment uh, and to back it into the perception that it was legal fees and so on to take it as a deduction. But that's just who he is. And let's wait to see. Hopefully Alvin Bragg does what we're all expecting him to do, because I think this is the easiest for them to prove. And I, again, I I think the documents speak for themselves. I hope so. I mean, it took Alvin Bragg a little longer than I think many of us would have liked to get to this point. And so, um, but he's now at this point, which tells me that there has been some more material, relevant information that would constitute his actions now being becoming more aggressive because he didn't want to touch this a year ago it's why his you know prosecutors resigned over it they're like there's enough here and he was like eh, you don't want to touch it but like apparently there's more and i'm i'm sure that there's a a certain very good looking outspoken um former attorney out there who had knows a little something about this that that is right in the middle of this hoping to see this to to the end right michael and i'm might pretty know sure him. you and i i'm pretty sure you and i will be speaking about this <laughs> At length. So, Tara, let me thank you as always for joining me. Your insight, just your optimism, your hope, your continued pressure via the Lincoln Project uh, against these horrific individuals that somehow managed to be our representatives. So I thank you for all that you're doing and we'll definitely be staying in touch. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm glad to be on the same team. And, and uh, it takes the righteous anger of the American people to, to beat back this malignancy of Trumpism. And we've done it before. Let's, let's keep it up. Amen. I'll see you soon, my friend. And now for today's mea culpa. This isn't a joke, but it sounds like a joke. What do Tom Brady and George Santos have in common? They both finally figured out when to say enough. Brady called it quits with the NFL earlier this week, and Santos pulled out of the committee that Kevin McCarthy stupidly fucking placed him on. And now, Santos is wandering around the hill without his signature glasses and pullover sweater, hoping no one will recognize him. I don't know what Brady is doing, but he says he won't be commentating on the Super Bowl for Fox this weekend. And maybe if he hurries, he can get his family back. You never know what's going on behind the scenes, but both Santos and Brady were at the mercy of public opinion and press scrutiny, and both now have bowed under the pressure. Things finally reach a sort of critical mass. Every grain of sand adds up until one day the center can't hold and it all comes down. We have real power when we push. The press doesn't like to go after stories that people won't read, so in essence, we need to be telling the press what we want to know more about. This week, some good old investigative journalism picked up the story about the Supreme Court. Wednesday, it was disclosed that Chief Justice Roberts' wife, Jane, has some business dealings that could and perhaps have compromised the court. Why is this important? because the unethical Supreme Court is now on our radar. The public at large knows they've got a rogue. Even Republicans are uneasy about the court because they have legislated in favor of a whole bunch of stuff that the American people fucking hate. The court is now a liability for the same people who installed them. And that's just another grain of sand. It's also been made abundantly clear that the court has lost its way 
by the press and by court watchdog organizations who are diligently calling out the court's failings one incident at a time. Go to any of their sites and you'll see tick, tick, tick. I mean, you get the picture, but the more pressure we mount, the better the results. The more that the press doggedly goes after the truth, the more the public will care. Now, look, folks, February is Black History Month and a real good time to stay vigilant. DeSantis announced plans to block state colleges from having programs on diversity, equity, inclusion, and critical race theory. Wednesday, the National College Board let us know that DeSantis' push was working and they've trimmed back and altered their courses. I mean, it's fucking sickening, and I encourage every one of you to be aware that this organization is revising black education and helping the GOP rewrite history in its own image. It's simply unacceptable. But here's the deal. If we keep quiet, it's a win for racists. Black people without a knowledge of their own history might be less inclined to vote. And we know for a fact that is exactly what this rewriting of black history in America is all about. Conservatives fear the black vote almost as much as they fear their white children figuring out what racism is all about and then blaming them for it. But the black vote and the voices that accompany it are powerful beyond what the GOP can manage or hold back. So they continue to oppress the black community with police violence and water down history. And then they systematically try to take away their voting rights. Don't let them do it. We can't let them do it. I'm not gonna let them do it. So there's no time like the present to write or call your representatives or perhaps call the board of election and let them know how you feel when you see what they're doing to silence black voters. Look, folks, at the end of the day, if they can stop you from voting because you're too sick and tired of the fucked up system to care, that's when you know that they've won. So we just have to keep pushing back because we have to win. So happy Black History Month to all. And as always, thanks for listening. Mayor Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my Maya Culpa. Don't cry.